Hello and welcome. My name is Brian and you're listening to Friends and Music with Brian Doherty. Yep, that's me. A podcast about all things music for those who are obsessed by it. I encourage you to subscribe to my podcast on your chosen platform and thank you for listening. My guest today is guitarist, composer, music educator, and music researcher, Stephen Sabat. Steve embarked on his musical journey at the age of 10, learning to play his favorite rock songs on the electric guitar. He's performed extensively in the New York area with various bands, including indie favorites Darby Jones and the band More, where he not only played guitar but wrote the songs. He is also a member of the New York City Guitar Orchestra. In addition to all of these accomplishments, Steve is an academic researcher in the music education field. He holds a Bachelor of Music from the Hart School, a Master of Music from Florida State University, and, of all things, a PhD in music education from Rutgers University. So I guess we have to call him Dr. Sabat. Sabat teaches guitar and music technology at the Thomas Jefferson Arts Academy in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and is an adjunct professor at Kane University in Union, New Jersey. He continues to be an active teacher, performer, and recording artist. We welcome Dr. Sabat to the show. So I'd like to welcome Steve Sabat to our conversation. Thank you for having me, Brian. Pleasure always speaking with you. You are you are so welcome. Um for those listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work, can you spend a, spend some time des- describing yourself? Who are you? What it is that basically is that you do, and then after that, we'll we'll dig a little deeper. All right, thank you. Uh, yeah, my name is uh, Steve Sabat. Um, I am today. I'm a, a music teacher. I teach guitar and music technology in Elizabeth. Um, I been playing guitar since I was 10 years old. Um, and uh, like a lot of guitarists, uh, you branch out into other realms of music, like especially with technology. So I started recording at a young age with a, a four-track tape recorder and then um, in playing all different styles of guitar, playing electric guitar, I learned classical guitar, and I still do both of those today. Um, I also teach as an adjunct uh, professor at Kane University teaching class guitar. So I guess you could say, um, you know, I am a professional musician uh, like yourself. And, um, and uh, you know, I think all of us musicians these days, it's you got to do teaching as part of a way to make a living, a, full, a full-time living in some capacity. Even performers, people that make a full-time living performing, they still teach in some capacity. So I think all, all of us musicians are teachers in some, some aspects. So, but to sum it up, I, I do guitar and music tech uh, pretty well. And um, that's pretty much the heart of what I do professionally and uh, personally as well. Okay. Thank you. Um, so tell us about the guitar. How do you come to the guitar? And, and you're 10 years old. Great question. Um, well, I started playing guitar. I was 10. And I was always fascinated by the guitar. I mean, I grew up in the 80s and 90s when the guitar was exploding. And 
all styles of rock playing. Um, and to be honest with you, uh, the, 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 what really put me over the top to, to like learn to play was the uh, movie Back to the Future with Michael J. Fox. I, when I saw that movie, I think it was seven or eight. And uh, I was so like captivated by how the guitar was such a big part of the movie from the amplifier in the beginning of the movie when he hooks up to that massive amplifier and he just like plays that power chord and he falls back into the bookshelf. I thought that I was like, as an eight-year-old kid, that was like so cool to see that and how it became such a, a facet of that movie with the Johnny B. Good guitar playing. And That's a great scene. Yeah, it's a great scene. And also the 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 scene where uh, he, he's wearing the hazmat suit and he puts in the Van Halen tape. And he oh, goes, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's, it's uh, Eddie Van Halen guitar playing that just like drives the, you know, his dad uh, at the time, uh, you know, drives him insane in the middle of the night. So I just thought, I don't know, after that, I kind of like my mom said, if you really want to play guitar, why don't you? So I you buy your first guitar and we'll, we'll get you lessons. So I, any, any money I got from like birthdays or holidays, I saved up and I bought my first guitar at 10 and my parents kept up their end of the bargain by uh, paying for lessons. So Do you buy an electric or, or an acoustic guitar? Yeah. I bought like this cheap like, guitar at Toys R Us that had like a built-in amplifier, believe it or not. And um, I don't have it anymore, of course, but uh, yeah, I had a built-in amp. So you, you didn't need an amp. So that's like what I could afford at the time. And I started playing guitar. And then my parents saw that I was getting serious. So they bought me a more, I guess, serious student electric guitar. And I just took lessons. And the thing about, I guess, um, which we'll probably come back to in this, in this uh, recording is that, you know, when you're, when you're a kid playing guitar at that time, there was no music outlet for you in public school. You know, everything yes. was... Everything was choir, mm-hmm. band, uh, jazz band was starting to get popular. But even then, there was no, I never saw guitar being influenced, whether it's in the middle school band or the high school band. That's what I was, I was going to say, stage band, middle school stage band. We would occasionally need a guitar player and have to scour the school for the one kid that could play guitar for like the two songs. Yeah, and it was just probably playing chords. But actually, when I was in middle school, I... Our, our choir teacher, she, she, I didn't, I wasn't really into choir, but she knew that I played guitar. So she asked me to play guitar in a couple songs for the choir concert. I thought that was really nice that nice. she reached out to me and she took the initiative because she, she loved the guitar. And, but you know, unless you had a disposition, uh, to, an appreciation for the instrument, people didn't really reach out because they were kind of like, they were like pigeonholed into like band, choir, um, you know, and that sort of thing. So, and even when I was in high school, I had a great music theory teacher, but that was my only music outlet in, in school. You know, I, of course I did like talent shows with garage bands and stuff like that, but there was no like avenue for guitarist to be part of it. And then one time I, the band teacher there she asked me if I would learn the book for Man of La Mancha to play guitar. But mm-hmm. she, it, she just threw the book at me and kind of like figure it out. So how the heck was I supposed to <laughs> figure this out? And I didn't have uh, the skill set, you know, that the other musicians had 
because they were getting, you know, daily training and band or whatever. She just like figured it out. And I didn't, and I didn't, that didn't work out too well. But what I did have, um, wait, did you end up playing the show or no? No, I didn't. I just couldn't, I didn't, I didn't understand the book. And, uh, you know, so at your point in your lessons, are you learning how to read music or are you, are you, um, you know, is this like a strip mall music school where like you have a high school kid who's teaching you guitar? Uh, that's a good point. Uh, I did have at that time I was taking private lessons with a teacher and I was I did. Ab- I was able to read music, especially from my music theory teacher. But I kind of got really good at reading because at that time I said, you know what, I want to do this. I want to go to college for music. So I started. um I started uh, taking classical guitar lessons through a uh, a teacher who taught at like the Montclair Preparatory Division at Montclair State. So he was a good classical guitarist, and he got me ready uh, to study and help me prepare for an audition for um, my college uh, application. So, yeah, I did. At that point, I switched over to a more, I guess you would say, a more serious uh, guitar teacher, and I was probably a junior at that time. So. And then, yeah, I, I started playing a lot of classical guitar pieces. Uh, and I guess a, an, an early influence that kind of brought me to classical guitar was I was a big fan of Randy Rhodes, uh, Ozzy Osbourne's first guitarist. You know, everybody knows him as the the guy who played the crazy train riff. But he was such an amazing guitarist, and he really um, inspired me at a young age. And he was classically trained. So I was like, wow, this guy's... I'm so mesmerized by his playing. I should probably look more into uh, classical guitar playing. So I took lessons uh, at the time, and uh, you know, I prepared my. Uh, um, a year later, I, I you know I got accepted into uh, a few music schools, and then I pursued college after. Okay, what do you? But what do you do from? Are, are there any neighborhood bands or anything or, or any of the guitar players from your town? Where, where, also, tell, tell us where you're from. Tell, tell us a little bit about you, you know, about your upbringings and musical influences and stuff like that. Well, I grew up in uh, Montville, New Jersey, and that's uh, Morris County. Sometimes when I meet people from Jersey, I'll say Montville. They always go, oh, yeah, Montville. No, it's two different. Montvale versus Montville. Yes. Right. And now I say it's like the Desperate Housewives uh, from New Jersey. Those, <laughs> it's, oh, uh, that's where they're it, from, Mont- Montvale? No, those, uh, they filmed that, the Jersey ones in Montville, some of the episodes. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Now they, then, then they make that connection. But uh, uh, yeah, so I grew up in Montville. And my parents, although they weren't musicians, they were very supportive in the uh, in me pursuing music, um, which is pretty unusual. Most parents be like, Oh, you want to go to college for music? Oh, that's not going to work. So, but they were very, mm. um, so I, I, I wish my parents did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just right? kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. <clears throat> but, uh, and then, but in high school, I kind of teamed up with, um, I mean, a lot of my friends were very supportive of me playing guitar, even though they were mostly, so do you know other drummers? And I mean, are you are you like is there are you ever like twelve years old? You you know a kid down the street who plays bass or another guitar player or anything? Or oh yeah, when I was in um, I'm in middle school. I had my I played a ta- you know like kind of like a end of the year party on stage. So a, a friend of mine who played drums and a friend of mine who sang. We we played like ACDC songs 
and we played uh it was a lot of fun and i, I remember i learned a star spangled banner from like Jimi hendrix transcription nice and i kind of played it like that and it was a lot of fun everybody was really supportive of that and that kind of continued high school where i played in talent shows and yeah i hooked up with like musicians from school you know I, the funny thing is i remember being a freshman and out of nowhere uh, a, a kid who was a senior called called my house i don't even know how he got my number he's like you want to come over and jam and i hear you're a good guitar player so i went over his house so me uh him and uh we there was another guitarist and we just like jammed around in, in the kid's basement it was a lot of fun and me being a freshman at the time it was kind of cool to like hang out with all the kids and just have music as like a common bond to connect with. So that was a lot of fun. And that kind of continued throughout my high school years. And um, so I was playing, like, as you would say, like gar uh, garage bands, you know, hooking up with other musicians in town, you know, even, and uh, just doing that. But, you know, a lot of my friends at the time are mostly like athletes. Cause I also played football and lacrosse. So, and a lot of those guys were not musicians, although they did appreciate that. They would always say, oh, bring your acoustic guitar over and when we're hanging out and just, you know, play some tunes. We'll do fantasy football while you play guitar for us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Are there any other famous musicians that are Jersey guys from Montville or from your area? Yeah, when, you know? yeah Pete Yorn was a big uh, singer-songwriter for a while. He, he was from my town. Um, did you did you know him or is he was he a legend at that time? He was actually my brother's grade. They played uh, they played lacrosse together and they were friends. So mm -hmm. a couple times I went to when he started doing well, I saw him play at uh, a couple gigs like in the city. And uh, he was he, he uh, and I spoke to him one t once or twice. He was he, he remembered my name. He he remembered my brother and him were friends. So how does that happen? So I mean, did, would were you curious at all as to, are you looking at him? What I'm assuming he's older than you. Yes? Yeah. He was uh, four or five years old. Okay. So you're looking at him. Do you ever, are you ever questioning like, Hmm, how did, well, what did he do? You know, to get to where he is. Are you, are you ever like thinking about, you know, the tra trajectory to, to, to move on or well, are you ever looking at him? Do you, do you want to do more investigation? That's a good question. I know he was, uh, he worked really hard. I know at a young age, I know he was playing in a lot of bands at high school and college. And I know he did self produce his own, like his first album to my knowledge. And I, I but I know he had like some family connections that kind of helped him establish himself. But he, I, I do know that he worked. Very important. Don't please, please don't skip over that. But I mean, <clears throat> I'm just saying like, it's very, very important to acknowledge that in a very positive way, many people that have made it, quote unquote, have gotten there because of their great networking and great family support, right? Yeah, that is that is true. I'm, I do know his mom was a was a very good classical pianist. who So that fostered a love of music at a young age. Uh, I, but I do know his, I think his brother... Rick Yorn is a uh, very successful uh, movies producer and movie agent. So, yes, of course, the network helps. I think uh, you got to have the right product, but you you need people to help you move that product along the way. So, 
Um, I, I did realize that at that point, it was a little late because I was probably, I don't know, 21. But then I started thinking to myself, well, how can I um, you know, try to adopt those type of networking skills? And so after college, and I, w- I went to the Hart School. I studied uh, classical guitar there. And then I actually went to right after college. I was still young. I got when I was I was 23 and I got a master's at Florida State in music therapy. But right after I graduated. So where do you go first, Florida or Connecticut? Hart is in where? Where, yeah, where is Hart? Hartford, Connecticut. So I Hartford, went there. Hartford, Connecticut. So where do you go first, Florida or Hartford? I went to Hartford uh, first. So I studied classical guitar there. And I really didn't play much electric guitar at that point during those years. But, and then when I went to Florida state, right after I studied music therapy and I also studied classical guitar there. But when I graduated, I was like, I came back to Jersey and uh, I was, was going to pursue the teaching route. But right when I graduated, I kind of, and this is very funny. This is actually a funny story. I, w- I wanted to get into a band. Uh, so I would get like, um, you know, remember the village voice, they would have those classifieds at the, the yeah. at the end, yeah. you know, and, and uh, the aquarium that? too, right? Yeah, 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 all those Jersey and New York papers. What was that New York, the other New York one? Uh, New York uh, or something like that? The Observer, wasn't it? Or no? I don't remember, but there was like, I would, I would scour those and, oh, looking for, you know, um, musicians. I would go through all these auditions in New York City. And then uh, the funny story here is here, here, my mom, believe it or not, my mom got a job at a, through a temp agency at a company. And through that same temp agency was a guy, his name was Seth, who played drums. And he was in a band called Darby Jones. And, uh, and my, my mom just struck a conversation with him. But she's like, oh, my son plays guitar and he's looking to, you know, he wants to get into a band. And so I don't know he he uh, he gave my mom actually uh, his email address, and I emailed him, and I didn't, I didn't hear from him for I don't know a couple months, and out of nowhere I get a phone call, mm-hmm. and he asked me to oh they were rehearsing in Wayne, and he asked me just to come down and just check it out. So I bring my guitar, I bring an amp, and we just started playing. And there was three guys in the band: uh, the singer Nick played guitar and sang. They had a bassist, uh, Rob, and there was a drummer, Seth. Are and you I, at somebody's house? I mean, are these? Yeah, uh, I was so in the guys. Uh, I was in Nick's basement. So and, you're driving from Montville to Wayne to right. to to meet these guys in the band. You load your gear into someone's basement. Yeah, and it was just like, it was just, uh, it, it was so, uh, it was very natural. Like I was, we were just hung out all night, and at the time I was working at ADP as a you know as a temp as well. Uh, it was a full-time job, but I was, you know, I wasn't like a permanent worker there. And uh, we started, I started going to this guy's house, Nick, a few times a week. Just to, I learned all their songs. And a couple of, I guess a month or two later, I played a gig with them in New York. So uh, had, are, they, are they starting out at this point? Or had they been playing? Are they in search of a new guitar player and that guy's you? What's the, what's um, the situation? That's a question. Their uh, previous guitar player, he he went out and started his own project. So they were looking for, I guess they would call themselves a power trio at the time, but they wanted to add another guitar player. So they were looking. Um, so I started, I, um, I started playing with them. I learned their songs and I played a, you know, 
kind of like a fill-in gig one night. I played two of their songs just to try it out. And then they asked me to go down the shore and they, we did some gigs and on um, in Seaside on one of the bars on Seaside on the boardwalk. And uh, I played a couple of those shows. And then little by little, I just started playing all their shows. It, it never, is this At this point, is it all original music or do you guys throw in some we were covers? All are you playing two sets, three sets? What are you doing? Yeah, we were doing like two sets. We were we were pretty much ninety percent originals, and we do throw a couple of uh, covers here and there. I know one of our, a couple of our really cool covers at the time were the Pixies, Gigantic, and uh, Psycho Killer. Song. Psycho mm-hmm. Killer. Um, we were playing that, and um, and it was a lot of fun. So we're playing those shows like in Jersey venues, um, and then out of nowhere, I'm like. I was playing with them for a few months now and I was doing all the rehearsals, learning all the songs. And I started contributing to the songwriter. I'm like, uh, and they never like asked me, do you want to be in the band? At that point, I was just like doing all the stuff. And they said, uh, Oh, by the way, yeah, yeah. You're, you're in our band. (laughs) I'm like, okay, cool. So, uh, and I started playing with them and we started, they were actually working on an album and they were kind of recording it little by little. Uh, they were working, or I should say, we were working with a producer named John Seymour, who had a he, he had uh, he was a, he did earn a Grammy for uh, uh, Carlos Santana's Supernatural album as an assistant engineer. Nice. So he yeah, he does have a good record, and I saw his. Uh, I just googled him recently. He does. He's still working with bands like Bouncing Souls, um, a lot of Jersey acts. So he had a studio. I don't know if he still does. Uh, but he was working out of a studio in Jersey City. So they recorded some of their songs at the time with him. And then uh, little by little, and as I started playing more with them, we recorded some other songs. Actually, we got a great, uh, great opportunity where we recorded uh, two, two of our better songs at, uh, uh, at Sony Music Studios in West 54th. I'm sure you recorded there mm-hmm. a bunch of times. Uh, Unfortunately, the studio is not in existence anymore, but it was probably one of the, the best experiences of my life to uh, record at a legendary music studio. So wait, at this point, what are you doing as a band? Are you guys, uh, oh, now we're all in the band together. Uh, we all share the recording costs, recording expenses, right. or I mean, is there, a, is there someone that's going to lay out the situation for all the band members or what do you, what do, you do? That's a great question. Uh, Nick... He, he was really good about getting gigs. So we were getting tons of gigs. And I was at one point, I think we were doing like two to three gigs a week, all at Jersey venues in New York venues, um, places like Arlene's Grocery, which I know you and I actually played a couple of dates. At, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, a couple of good day, we did some dates at Mercury Lounge, Maxwell's, a lot of uh, great Jersey and New York staples. Um, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of those, some of those places that we played are no longer around or they're, they changed into just a regular bar instead of a, a place that has, uh, indie music. But, uh, we played a lot of these different venues. Yeah. And we were, we were, we did some touring. We played, uh, we did a couple week tour from like, we start like in DC. We went to the Carolinas. We did, went to Nashville, Ohio. So we did all these shows. And Nick was really good about booking gigs. And uh, um, we all shared, you know. Steve, one- Steve, hold on. We're just going to pause the combo yeah. right there because I've got, I got a call. Well, I will edit this out. Hello? Hi, Brian. 
Hi. Hi, Jane. How you doing? Okay. Um, the Mercury Lounge offered him a job to uh, to to be in charge of booking booking gigs. He didn't he didn't accept it, but uh, he he did. I did notice that he had a really good business sense. He was very aggressive about um, calling venues up, who, even people who he had no contact with, and just calling them up and say, "Hey, you know, my name's Nick. I'm with a band called Darby Jones. You know, we're going to send you a press kit and CD, and if we can get a." Um, a gig over there and i would actually follow up with that and send um or like three song sampler and posters and whatnot to the so but is this stuff costing you guys money i mean are you all putting up money to be part of of the band together how does it get get down to the nitty the nitty-gritty how does how does it work or 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 do you have a backer or or do you have a label what do you what do you do uh, we were all at that you know we were all self-promoted um, we did have, um, you know, we did, we're, you know, we try, we're trying to get a lawyer at the time and, uh, we did get some contacts, but we were really just trying to fund everything ourselves. We, of course we would, uh, try to get gigs and we will send out press kits. And at that time, the, the internet wasn't that, um, like it is today where you can just send them, here's your, your songs to stream on YouTube and check us out. You know, we really had to um, do a lot of the legwork ourselves. Whether me going to the gigs and or the venues and giving them our press kit, and or actually mailing the the you know the materials out. So what's um, the, what's the plan at this point that you guys are going to do gigs, build up a fan base, and then what? Well, our goal was to get you know get a record deal, and uh, um, that was our goal. Um, and, uh, we did record, uh, a full length album. Some of it was recorded at the Jersey city studio where John Seymour was working, but, and some of it was also recorded at that Sony music studio. So we did put together a professionally well-produced, well-mastered recording. That's still produced Were you self-produced or did, or are you bringing people in? Well, John Seymour, I guess he was, you know, he didn't, we, really didn't pay him much, but I guess he was doing like a spec deal. So if we got signed, of course he would get credit and uh, I'm sure to, to his liking, he would probably get taken care of then, but we were trying to uh, get a deal. Um, and so we were doing all that with the indie uh, and playing all, with all these other Jersey indie bands at the time. And um, actually uh, before I was in the band, Nick told me they were playing some gigs with the Strokes at the time at, at oh, Benny. Nice. Yeah, like Mercury Lounge. They were sharing gigs together. So, it was, and actually, that band, that really big band, My Chemical Romance, mm-hmm. I think they're from Belleville or Newark, and they uh, we played a couple gigs with them before they made it. So we were kind of like in the same circuit as these other bands, and we were all just trying to do the same thing, you know, trying to get recognized and did you ever play a club in bloomfield called the dirt club was that around when you guys were playing i didn't play at that one but i used to play at uh i think it was in patterson the loop lounge okay yeah i've I've been there yeah yeah and that was actually a really good venue they had a really good um really good um live room over there but yeah we you know uh, played a lot of different venues um and um we used to play yeah places like in jersey city um 
couple of gigs in Garfield, uh, the Crows out like in thing is Stanhope out there. Mm. Um, and we, we actually we used to play a, a lot of gigs at the Sawmill and uh, Seaside Heights, right on the boardwalk. That was a lot of fun. That was actually a great venue to play at. Um, and uh, so are yeah. you guys building up a fan base at this point? Yeah, or are you? You yeah, have a ma- yeah. Are these? Are, is this the day of like a mailing list and sign our mailing? Yeah, we list did have that. We, yeah, we would uh, remember that. At all of our gigs, we would pass around like a, a clipboard, clipboard. Where people add their emails to it. Yeah, and we would just we would have that email list whenever we had a gig. We would do a mailing list to so people would uh, comment, and it worked to some extent. And you know how it is back then. If you drew so many people to the door, you got a cut from the door. But you know, it's never money to uh, to make a living on. It's just to offset your costs. So, are you guys? Is this like you're playing these gigs Fridays and Saturdays? Then Monday, you're going back to your 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 day job, or yeah, I mean, pretty much. Um, but sometimes we'd have gigs during the week. Sometimes we would go up to Boston and play a couple dates there. And uh, then we would come home and, you know, do whatever. And it, yeah, that's really what we were trying to do. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, uh, like I always tell my students, they say, oh, why didn't you make it? You know, like it's just like uh, every band is like a marriage right? and uh, some marriages work, some marriages don't. And it's really, really true because you got to be committed to each other and uh, you got to be able to really work out all the kinks and you know you're dealing with different personalities and although i i still consider all those guys friends um it's just you you sometimes you grow apart and uh, two of the members actually left the band to start playing with another wait so how many guys you said four four guys originally right four of us were together four then two leave that's 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 yes you know actually while we were playing gigs um and, and working on our projects, two members were playing the rhythm section. I guess you would, uh, the guys, Seth and Rob, they started playing with a singer songwriter who needed just the rhythm section. So they first started out just being um, this guy's rhythm section. And then at little by little, I guess he was getting um, more established and then he needed them more. And so little by little, it kind of like, we saw that this wasn't working out. It's kind of like in, in, in uh, if you had a relationship, I guess people say, uh, oh, I guess it's time to start seeing other people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because of the fact that they were work willing to work with other people or that you just sensed that they weren't into this band as much. Exactly. As, that's exactly. Know? Nick and I both realized that this isn't working out. And we both realized, I mean, I remember they sent out a, uh, like, here's our calendar for the next two months. And it was kind of like a date here and there for us. And, and it's like, I understood, you know, I get it. You know, it's a business too. If they if they see a better opportunity. Um, and actually at one point they asked me to audition for this guy. And I actually played with him uh, a couple of t- rehearsals. I mean, it, so it was just like, you know. So if we could just pause right there, what is, so question, these guys, is, is everybody a songwriter in Dar- in this band, Darby Jones? Yes, we were all working on so all you're all songwriters. And then two but, of the guys leave to go support somebody else. Are they also songwriters with this other artist? That's a good question. I th- I know Seth was, he he wrote a lot of our, he was good in, with lyric writing. And he, I'm sure he, I don't know all the ins and outs of his, his uh, 
their their project that they moved towards. But uh, I just have two thoughts. One is that why couldn't they stay and just do both and be songwriters in both projects, increasing their possibilities of income stream from publishing in both and you know or why would they cut one for the other you know um i think at that time it was kind of like i don't know i don't think their hearts were in it anymore it was like i think for some of them were like wondering okay this isn't really working out so maybe we should how how long at this point how long have we been playing gigs right now in in darby jones two has this been two years three years one year it was about two years. Uh, so for after guys, two years, and you're and you're going and you're and you're back at the same club at the Jersey Shore, and you're and you're just feeling like you're feeling like it's not this. This is not what what it once was. Is that yeah, it? I, you could say that to some extent. That's that's what the feeling was, and I think I was like twenty five or twenty six at the time. And at the time, I kind of I just bought my first condo, and I was like, you know what? Let me let me uh, you know if. They want to do something else. I understand, but I guess I guess I got to take care of myself and my own interest. So we disbanded. I think our last show was at the at the the Crows. I think that was in. Um, you got to tell us more though. What? So you can't just disband. So you got you got us to the point where somehow in your gut you guys are not feeling like this is it. Yeah, you they, guys are are working with other musicians, but so what? I mean. Yeah, I I think now looking back on it, you know, years ago, maybe that would have been the right decision. Just okay, let's keep on. From no, a but do you have a do you have a band meeting? Does someone say like you know? Does is somebody pointing a finger at somebody else about? You know, that's a good know? point. I I think we were kind of getting at each other. I I kind of felt. I remember one of them sent me. We, we had a calendar of events that was book solid. So you can imagine in three months or so, we were not even going to meet for rehearsal. So it was like, so we're going to be on a hiatus. Like, what, what, are, what are we doing? I think Nick and I, at that point, we kind of felt like this, we don't feel the commitment. So I think we all met and like, we all discussed like, here is this calendar and there's no Darby Jones time in there. And so it's like, I kind of felt. So they put out a calendar of all of like, let's say, this other enterprise, this other business. So they put out a calendar of this other artist and you guys all at all in one. Yeah. They kind of said, well, here's time for Darby Jones. And that's oh, like, I gotcha. Was this calendar for public consumption or was it just like your working calendar? Part, like, uh, I think it was Seth. He shared his calendar with us. Oh, gotcha. So, so, he, so they're making, they're making less time for Darby Jones. Exactly. And so it's kind of like, well, and I met, I had no ill will to any of them. I, I was like, I see it. I understand. But it's like, well, what are we doing here? And I think at the time, um, I honestly felt that they wanted to move on. And it just, just wasn't working out. And that was it. I kind of, and Nick, I think to my knowledge, Nick agreed. He's like, this isn't working out. And we don't want to be like working on something and everybody's heart is not in it. But I was really disappointed because at the time, Nick got a call from an A&R rep from Sire Records. And he was saying, oh, you know, we we just got the new album that you guys released on, uh, you know, and we like it. And we, we understand you guys are doing a lot of work in New York and Jersey. And, you know, 
kind of like you're on our radar, so to speak. So, I mean, who knows what would have happened? But at the same time, I, I guess their hearts were elsewhere. And I guess you can't like convince somebody to really stay on the you, project if it's not working for I them. Have to, do you feel that there was something do? Was there something underhanded going on that? Uh, yeah. I don't know. Now, were uh, they going to take the business, the new business contact to it, to a new venture? And so to I speak? think that, I mean, I think they were looking out for their own business interest and I think they had some funding to go on tour and to pay for what they wanted to do. And we didn't, we were self, we were independent. So I think they had funding. Uh, they had um, a project that was, being supported by outside people. So I guess they, they, there was an investment in them and I don't, and there really wasn't in us at the time. So I think they kind of picked what was better for them. So, gotcha. and, and then at the time I was like, I, um, you know, I was still te- at the point I was teaching in Elizabeth. I think I was in my, I just finished my first year as a music teacher in Elizabeth. And I was like, okay, this is going okay. So I'm just going to continue teaching and Nick was teaching guitar privately. And uh, so I was like, you know, so after then I started to uh, go back to the village voice, <laughs> you know, looking at right. want ads and looking at all that stuff and to try to find gigs. And I started doing auditions. And actually that's how I met Kenward Cooper, which you and I worked with, mm-hmm. did some recording and gigs with. And then I actually was, got into a band called Moore who was actually they were they were another rock band they, but they were strictly NYC I was the only jersey guy mm-hmm. and so token started, token jersey guy <laughs> I was a token jersey guy and that, I was in that band for about a year and uh, we worked kind of different than Darby Jones is that they did have an established lawyer they did have a lot of we didn't do a ton of gigs but when we did a gig it was packed it was like okay. Uh, the singer Tom was very big on getting people at shows. He was really, he was also um, very busy business uh, savvy and he, he would get tons of people at our shows and we would play like a venues like Don Hell's Mercury lounge, a um, couple other New York spots. And, uh, and I used to, we used to actually rehearse in the music building right outside of Port Authority. Yeah, I, I, I know it well on eighth. What was it, 538 8th Avenue or something? Yeah, with those uh, 583 creepy uh, red elevator. Yes. Like you're wondering if it's ever... Uh, <laughs> if it's ever it, really going to stop or come... Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it was, it was just, yeah. So okay. I was with those guys for a year. So, but, this, so, so, so this is actually a good, I think a good, because you brought up teaching again. Mm-hmm. And um, you brought us up to this point, and it sounds like you, you have your feet firmly planted in you know you have a condo now you're you're growing up you're you've given uh um the indie the indie music scene a shot and you're, and you're still playing but you've but you've um you're kind of committed to being a full-time music educator at, at yeah, a public I mean, school in elizabeth new jersey so i think with the time that we have left do you want to tell us just t- tell us uh a little more about your teaching and then some, some of your more academic pursuits in, in your doctoral program and stuff. Yes. So, I mean, I already had a master's degree at the time and I was, you know, teaching in Elizabeth 
And something happened. I think after my fifth year teaching, I was teaching general K through five music in Elizabeth. And, you know, I was content with it. It was fine. I was in general is, is, is to yeah. what grades? What grades? A K through five. I taught general music. Oh, and I had, a, I had a small guitar program that I started over there. And so what happened was I, um, my supervisor at the time called me up. He says, I have an opening at the high school. Um, it's to teach music technology and guitar. And I, he's like, do you want to, uh, do you want the job? It's yours. And nice. I'm like, yeah. So I was like, you know what? I spoke to my, and my, my dad gave me some advice. I spoke to my dad. I was like, you know, I'm pretty content with my job. Should I take the job? He goes, my dad gave me some advice. He says, if somebody ever asks you to do a job, they're going to, you know, you're going to get paid for it. And it's something that will challenge you and something that you think you could do well in time. You never say no. And so right. and I said, well, why not that? He goes, well, nobody will ever ask you to do anything again. So never say no. If somebody's asking you to do a job that you can realistically do. So That's good, good advice. So I took, you know, listen to my dad and I was like, okay, I'll just do it no matter what. I could have been just content spending the next 25 years in that job, but you know, I'm happy I, I jumped at the opportunity. So I started teaching music technology and guitar at the high school level. And I liked it. And then the first year I have to say it was really hard going from K to five to high school kids in Elizabeth mm. was not easy. So, but, and then I was like, I was going to like these professional development workshop shops in, uh, in, um, you know, like the NJEA, uh, Atlantic city teacher, um, uh, mm -hmm. conferences. So I went there and I met a really good guy named Christopher Kenneth, who is a guitar teacher at Keene university. And I just struck a conversation with him. He's like, Oh, do you want to, you know, I'm always looking for, you know, adjuncts to teach guitar at Kane, like part-time, you know, give me your number and, uh, you know, send me your resume. And, um, you know, when you never know a spot could open up. So that got me thinking. I was like, you know what? If I can get a job as an adjunct at a college and do this, maybe, you know, there could be a future. So I, at that point, I, I applied to Rutgers to get a doctorate in music ed. And I started the following fall part-time. And, and a year or so later, I got a call from Kane to start teaching part-time. I got a job there and I've been there for 10 years now. Very nice. And I got that job because somebody, you know, if you're an adjunct and you can't do a bunch of classes, you're supposed to get a sub. So I got that job as a sub and I just did a couple of the dates. And then from that point on, I was on the list and I got the job when, they, when they, the class opened up full, uh, for me. Is this like a guitar lab or is it, are there yeah. like 10 students in the room or what? Is exactly. It? It's a class guitar. So it's like 10 to 15 students per se. And it's kind of like mostly beginners, although there are a couple kids there who are really good. And they just kind of like wanted to take the guitar as a free elective. So, and I, you know, I was while what was good about Kane is that I would finish Elizabeth and go right, right to uh, Kane because it was it was you know ten minute drive. So, so I just I, want to describe for listeners that may not be familiar. So Kane College or University? Kane University. Kane University is in Union, New Jersey, right? Yes, and Elizabeth. And is also in Union County, right next door. Sure, and then what we're, we're we're kind of talking around the like the Newark Airport area for anybody who's not you know right. who's, for anybody who's passed and th through the state. But 
That's so a good you're going from your day gig to your night teaching gig, and you're also enrolled in your doctoral program. Yeah. And your so, doctorate's going to be in what? Uh, music education. And I had like my cognate or specialized area was in um, music technology. So, I mean, it took me a long time to graduate. I have to say it took me much. I was going part time. So it took me about pretty much 10 years with my dissertation to graduate. Wow. So, yeah. And I graduated. How, how many years of that was course study and how, how many years was just your research and your dis- dissertation? That's a great question. Uh, I would say about seven was coursework. And I was only wow. taking one class a semester. So it was very slow process. And a couple of times I took a summer class. Uh, and there was a, actually a couple of like fall or spring cl- sessions where I didn't take a class. So I kind of made it up in the right. summer. But um, and uh, yeah, so I graduated last year and, uh, you know, the dissertation took me well over three years to complete. And it was really grueling as well. You know, the whole process of writing it, doing your study, defending it in front of a, your committee. Um, but, you know, I was very happy because recently I rolled that uh, study into, you know, I chopped it down my 250 pages of dissertation. I chopped it down into a more digestible reading of 25 pages. And now it's going yes. to be published in the, the journal of popular music education. I think that's going to come out in the fall. So congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. So it was, it was and, and for just so I can reiterate how important that is when you've done your research as a, as a doctor, doctoral student, your your hope is that you you want to be published in a peer reviewed journal. Is that is that right? I mean, yeah, that I means everything to college careers and right. Isn't there isn't there a a, a saying a publish or per, or perish or whatever? Yeah. Or, you know, uh, absolutely. I guess if if you do land, if you're lucky enough to land a full time college teaching gig. Yes, you're going to be expected to uh, publish pretty regularly, I imagine, you know, um, your writings. So the fact that I was able to turn my, the way I see it is that, you know, I graduated with the doctorate and then by getting my uh, article published in a real peer review journal, it kind of validates my degree. It kind of says, oh, um, you didn't just earn it from Rutgers, you also earned it in the profession because uh, an outside group of educators and professionals viewed my research as, as a, as, as a positive contribution to the educational research. Very nice. So, Very nice. Congratulations. Uh, what is, what are, what are, what are the major findings? So can you break it down? So you do your dissertation in music technology as it relates to music education. Yes. And so I, what are, what are the findings? What are the big takeaways that um, a listener could, you know, how, how, how would you break it down in a couple sentences for us? That's a good question. Uh, I did my study in, with my students. Um, I didn't know which students participated until the study was over, but I taught them how to use uh, GarageBand for uh, iPad. So I taught them how to use the app to create their own music, compose and share their music. So I guess you could, it was a case study. So it's not like a uh, quantitative where there's like numbers associated. It was kind of describing um, their, their learning and um, their experience composing with the app. So my, my takeaways from it was that, um, you know, of course, students, even without a lot of music 
theory knowledge. They're applying musical elements to their work, like melody, harmony, um, form. They're using uh, a lot of these kids that had very limited music training before felt empowered that they can write good music that they're proud of, even with limited music experience. Because a lot of these kids, they didn't have much music training before coming to my class. Because a lot of music technology typically attracts kids who are not um, involved in other types of music classes. Oh, I did have some kids. So these kids are not playing trumpet in the band. No, I had a couple they're, of choir kids, uh-huh. but there were not, um, there were not, yeah, they're not the kids, the traditional music ensemble kid. So they're guitar players, maybe play piano. So you, so you described to us how you got your data. Mm-hmm. Now, what does your study suggest? That music technology, what? Well, what, what was good about my study, because there's a lot of research in music technology, but there's not a... What was good about my study is that I, I put forth a method. Like, here's, here's a six-week curriculum that teachers can use to you know, learn how to use the app, uh, to teach kids how to compose with the app, and ultimately, the kids would, they, they would share their work for before their classmates so all these kids were engulfed in i used the core curriculum you know the national standards to guide on creating and music technology to guide uh, the lesson so the takeaway is that here's a method for music teachers who don't have a lot of music technology training here, here here's like kind of like a six-week lesson plan Soup where you got integrated yeah yeah so the kid so a teacher could technically read the study and integrate what I did with uh, their students and be able to, because there's, there's assignments that I included in it. Uh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking all you need to do is pull your, pull all that stuff out and just make it into a curriculum, bind that. And that, that becomes a product in itself. Yeah, it does. Uh, I mean, I guess if you download my whole dissertation has all the assignments that I created. Uh, not, 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 I think you should charge for it. Yeah. <laughs> I think you should monetize. I love that word. I should. I should monetize it. I should monetize it, but I think uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know how to how to how to turn that into a book that people will. You know, I don't know. That's that's a skill in itself. Like how do how do uh, monetize on your work? And um, but I was very. Our students. So so your study focused on the how students perceived and how students fared uh, by, by way of this teaching method, right? Yeah, so my, my so, question was, so, well, how, so and you, how was it? And, and, and so how did they do? Oh, they, they did great. I mean, my question, I guess you would say, is uh, how do students experience uh, compos- music composition when using GarageBand for iPad. So I'm really describing all their experiences. You know, I, but I also, while it was largely positive, there are some, I also talk about the, the, the negatives, so you will, like the problems. Like some kids, you know, a lot of these apps, they have loops in there. Some of the kids thought using loops is non-creative and it kind of does the work for you. Or the autoplay feature on the iPad, you can tap on the chords and it plays an arpeggio pattern for you mm-hmm. so some kids did not like that those features they felt that kind of well where's the work if it's doing it for me so i talk about um the misses 
that that or like uh, what kids didn't like about the program. But I also bring it back as like we, these are options. You're not required to use these features. Right. They're there if you want to. Um, but think about it: if a kid has a disability or a kid has no experience in music, they can use these features to have a musical experience. And I think that reaches another population of students. So it's a good point of entry, especially if you're on an iPad and you have no musical experience at all like that. Yeah. Here we go. Way to do it. Yeah. Here we go. Open it up and do it. Yeah. Open up and do it. So Um, that's what I talk about. Well, that's great. And thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing your story of, um, your musical adventures and, and and especially with your band Darby Jones. Um, as we're, as we're wrapping this up now, I want to ask uh, all of my guests. Um, so what's the big picture? How do you want to be remembered? What are you, you know, what, what's this all about? Can you, can you give that to us in, in a few sentences? Yeah. Well, as I guess as a music teacher, I want to be remembered as somebody that of, of good character that the kids you know, remember me as somebody who did make a positive impact, not just them as musicians or students, but as a, as a person. So I definitely want to be remembered as somebody who uh, was a positive influence, especially on my students. Very good. Great. Um, Go ahead. And I, as a musician, you know, I'm, I'm still writing and creating music and I want to uh, take that music further and do something with it professionally that lands itself in some sort of tangible outcome that the music is featured in a, in a medium such as film or TV or some sort of avenue that, you know, the work is shared all over the world in a place that people appreciate. So, gotcha. well, great. Those are great um, goals and something that, oh, and both of those are, are, um, are, are, are what will keep musicians up at night because we're, we're always thinking about music and we, and we, we never want to just put our, put our feet up. We want to always learn and do better and do more and reach more people. So yeah, that's I can, true. I can def, definitely appreciate that. And so as we, as we're wrapping this up, how do listeners get in touch with you? How do they find you on social media? How do they hear some of your work? Um, give us, give us all those platforms. Well, the music that, I've done in, um, you know, in Darby Jones or more, all those albums and songs are available on Apple music, Spotify. So if you Google or search Darby Jones in, uh, in Apple music, Spotify, the, the work will come up. My also music that I've done with you, um, Sabin and Darty is available on Apple music, Spotify, YouTube. Um, we just set, set up a band camp page. Uh, so, the music that I've created, if you just search my name, it will, is on all your streaming services that you, you that people use today. And that's under Steve Sabbath or Steven Sabbath or that's with, uh, no end. It's just Steve. Steve Sabbath. Okay. Or just Google Sabbath and Doherty yourself. You would also get the work that we did our EP. Um, I also play in um, uh, the New York uh, New York City Classical Guitar Orchestra. So that's something I'm also a part of. And when when are we going to, if we wanted to, which we do, but if we wanted to um, get into your research, when is this paper going to be published? And would we be able to find the journal without, like like through regular library resources or what? That's a good question. It will be in print in digital form. 
my knowledge is November of this of this year. Okay. Uh, so it's the Journal of Popular Music Education, and um, but I don't. That will be available through colleges and digital databases through colleges. I'm sure if you requested it through like your local library, they could probably get a hold of it because a lot of those peer reviewed journals they can um, get the electronically. They don't. It's like a license. They give it to you like. Right. For seven days, but you can always download the PDF. Um, but um, you do can. You, do you that. have any parting advice to music educators out there before we wrap it up and say goodbye? Yeah, de- definitely. Like my dad's advice: if somebody asks you to do a job and they're going to pay you for it, and you it's within your skill set and and it could challenge you, definitely say yes. Don't say no. Um, and I also think definitely as music educators, definitely get equipped um, using music technology because not just because of the, the COVID-19 environment we're living in now with uh, how there's so much remote learning, but just in general, like there's so much music technology resources now and we really need to get a hold of it because I have so, I've had, I'm going to have, I think my fifth or sixth student teacher coming up in the fall and none of them have had any solid music technology training. And I think for people growing up in this day and age who grow up with that technology, it's a little, it doesn't, it doesn't speak of strength in the field. If kids graduating college now, 21, 22 years old, who grow up with technology, if they're not good at music technology, there's, there's, there's something really wrong these days since our, uh, our children these days are growing up with technology from such a young age, but they can't record or set up a microphone or uh, use technology. They're still stuck in music education from like 1950. And to me, that's really unacceptable at this point. And the colleges are not doing enough to change that paradigm, in my opinion. So I think that that could almost be topic of a different podcast and maybe one that's just solely based on music education because we could talk about the merger of, you know, the feeder schools that feed into right. middle and high schools and all and, and universities, but also what's what's at the other end? These kids get out of the university and are they, do they have all the tools for for the commercial music business, you know? Yeah, a lot, so, of, um, a lot of people don't have it unless they're popular musicians like guitarists or right. pian- pianists that want to learn this skill. Right. Or unless you teach yourself or just find, exactly. find it's almost like you have to do it the old school way and read album jackets and re- do your own research and stuff. But you find out um, what these calls are. Yeah. So, Steve, I, I want to say I really enjoyed this conversation. I want to thank you for being here with us. And, thank you, um, Pleasure. And uh, let's wrap it up here and I will speak to you soon. And thank you everyone for listening to Steve Sabat. Thank you. Thank you very much. Be well. Well, folks, we're going to leave it there for today. I hope you enjoyed the show and please remember to subscribe and share this podcast. You've been listening to Friends and Music with me, Brian Doherty. Today's intro and outro music are provided by the band Treat and Release, whose music is available on all streaming services. To learn more about me or to get in touch, please visit my website, briandoherdydrummer.blogspot.com.
You can also follow me on all social media platforms. Thanks again for listening and see you soon. Shoulder, the sun sinking lower and lower.